Amen. Let the church say amen. Amen. We serve a risen Savior, and He is resurrecting us. Thank God for eternal life. I used to think we have abundant life now and eternal life later, but someone convinced me that eternal life begins when you get to know Jesus. Eternal life has already begun. Praise the Lord. Uh, as I mentioned, Becky and I have been away for several weeks, and uh, I listened to two of Pastor Mark's sermons about identity online. I listened to half of Pastor Nathan's sermon on identity. It was so long, I couldn't listen to the whole thing. No, not, not really. He's not here today, so don't tell him I said that. But uh, I just, I, I was listening in the, in the truck, and we pulled in somewhere and had to turn it off and never turned it back on. So anyway, this, this is my first time to sit down here and take a good look at this graphic, which I think is very creative with the name tags. And I realized that some of those present positive images and some of them present negative images, right? For instance, uh, if you have abilities, then your identity is in a positive thing. If you have a good self-image or you, your children are great, you have a good positive identity. But there can be some negative ones there, like my addictions, my mistakes, or my weight. And I wonder why that one was so big and prominent right there on the right. I am my weight. But I'm, I was thankful that I've lost some weight in the last few months. And I was in a store the other day and waiting in line to get up to the cash register. When I finally got up there, the lady said, sorry about your weight. And I said, wait a minute, I've lost 25 pounds in the last four months. Why are you sorry about my weight? She said, oh no, I meant the other word. And I said, why don't you use this phrase? Thank you for your patience. So I was able to help that customer service representative learn a little bit. Uh, I like this series on identity, and it must be important because Pastor Mark has preached five sermons about it. Pastor Nathan has preached one. I'm going to preach one, and I think Pastor Mark's going to preach at least one more. So it must be important that we know our identity, especially to know that our identity is in Christ. I have a friend named Malachi Dean. Many of you know him. He uh, came to faith in this church. He was called to ministry in this church. He's pastored over in Dayton. Now he's on staff at a Nazarene church in Cincinnati called Springdale. And he posted on his Facebook page the other day these words. I thought this was, this was great about identity. Here's what he said. While I still have temptations in my life. Can anybody identify with that? We all have temptations. And always remember, temptation is not sin. The fact that you get tempted doesn't mean you've sinned. It's when you yield to the temptation, when you give in. That's when sin happens. Everybody gets tempted. And we're going to see today that Jesus was tempted in all ways just like we are. Think of that. It seems like Satan would be wasting his time tempting Jesus, right? But Jesus was tempted as well. And so Malachi says, while I still have temptations in my life, listen to this. I have zero, none, nada, negative peer pressure in my life. No negative peer pressure in his life. Why? Because I have allowed the right people in my life. And then he says, choose well. That's good advice, isn't it? See, who you surround yourself with, as Pastor Mark has been saying, helps you form your identity. Who are you? Who are you in Christ? 
you're not listening to the voices of your peers. Now, I work with senior adults here, the wow factor, 55 and over. We have some folks in their 90s that are still an active part of this church and some that can't get out like they used to that I go visit. And uh, some of them have absolutely no peer pressure. You know why? They don't have any peers. (laughs) All their peers have died and gone to heaven, we hope. But uh, so they don't have to worry about peer pressure. And if you surround yourself with the right people, people, you'll not have any trouble with negative peer pressure. In fact, it might work the other way. There'll be some positive peer pressure that says, hey, why are you dragging your feet? What's taking you so long? Come on, are you growing spiritually? If you surround yourself with good, positive spiritual influences and peers, they will spur you on to better things in your spiritual life. One of our Sunday school classes are small groups known as the 20 and somethings class. Used to be the 20 somethings, now it's the 20 and somethings. They've got people in there in their 20s, 30s, 50s, 60s, but they don't have any in their 40s. So if you're in your 40s and you'd like to be a part of this class, they'll take you. That way they can have every decade represented from 20 through 60. They're studying a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. Some of you have read it. It's a Christian classic. C.S. Lewis had another great Christian classic that I think everybody ought to read. I need to read it again. It's called The Screw Tape Letters. Have you ever heard of it? The Screw Tape Letters. Screw Tape was a, uh, an experienced demon working for the dark side. And his nephew, Wormwood, was a brand new demon. And so Screw Tape had been given the job of mentoring his nephew, Wormwood, in his devious and deadly work of trying to influence a certain number of human beings to whom he had been assigned to make sure that they don't turn to Christ, that they don't live a good life, that they don't go to heaven. And so Screwtape keeps writing letters to Wormwood. Well, one of our other Sunday school classes taught by Greg McAfee, they meet right over here, first hour. You could be a part of that class too. They're studying a book where the guy wrote some modern screw tape letters. So you get the concept? This is an experienced older demon writing advice to a new demon. So it's going to be backwards, right? Talk about devil's advocate. That's exactly what it is. So we're going to hear bad advice because it's one demon to another. Here's what he says. Dear Wormwood, Remember your subject bears the hideous image of our enemy. Get it? Who's our enemy? In his case, the enemy is God. And your subject, the person you're assigned to making sure that they don't make it to heaven, your subject bears the hideous image of our enemy. And your subject reflects that image in a unique way. Since you cannot wipe out that image, the next best thing is to train your subject to actually hate the particular way in which she uniquely reflects the enemy's glory. In short order, your goal is to train her to hate that which makes her glorious. If, in addition, you can convince your subject to admire the God image in another person and to strive to become more like that other, this would be delightful. Get her trying to be someone else, even if that someone else is sickeningly godly. That doesn't matter. What your subject does not know is that she cannot become that other person because the enemy has created her to be herself. 
You see, your identity in Christ is not to be like anybody else. It's to be like Him. To find your identity in Him. Your goal, Wormwood, is to make sure she becomes committed to hiding her true self and focused on becoming someone else. As long as she is focused on being like this woman over here or that woman over there, everything will be fine. But our cause, Wormwood, is in grave jeopardy if she begins to reach down into the depth of her heart, grab hold of the way she reflects God as no one else does, and then offers that unique self to the world. See, we all have a purpose. To be like the one who created us. To reflect His image. To declare His glory. You can't be like someone else. You're uniquely you. God has made you the way you are. And He's refining you into the person He wants you to be. So you can reflect His image to those around you. We find our identity in Christ. There are many examples in the Bible of people who knew their identity. The first one that comes to my mind is John, the one we call John the Baptist. Um, that wasn't his last name. It wasn't John, middle name, the last name, Baptist. He was John, but he was the baptizer. There are two Johns in the Bible, John the Baptist and John the Beloved. Sometimes we call John the Beloved the disciple Jesus loved, James and John, Peter, James and John, you know, that John. He also wrote the Revelation. So sometimes we call him John the Revelator. So I asked my little girl one day about children's church, and I said, what was your lesson about? She said, John. I said, which John? Trying to sound really uh, academic. I said, which John, Catherine? John the Baptist or John the Revelator? She looked at me and said, John the Babelator? <laughs> so, so she had the two in one, I guess. But John the Baptist was baptizing. That's what Baptists do. They baptize, right? That's where they get the name. And here's what it says about him in the first chapter of John, written by the other John, okay? John the Beloved wrote the gospel, and he talks about John the Baptist. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Doesn't that doesn't that kind of smack of identity there? Who he was. Who are you? That's our question today. John did not fail to confess, but confess freely. I am not the Messiah. Now, they didn't ask him, who are you not? They asked, who are you? You ever ask somebody a question and they answer in a negative? What have you been doing? Well, I haven't had any time off lately. right? You answer with a negative. So they asked John, who are you? He said, I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, what else did they ask him? They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Now that would have been a big deal because Elijah was dead. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, a prominent one. So if he was Elijah, this would be supernatural. It would be Elijah back from the dead. They needed to know if he was Elijah. He said, I am not. Are you the prophet with a capital P? That could have been any of the prophets. And it could have been the Christ, but he had already said, I'm not the Messiah. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And look, three words, who are you? Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And here was his answer. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Isn't that interesting? They asked John the Baptist who he was, 
while he was preaching this message of repentance by the Jordan River, he was inviting people to be baptized, and he didn't say, oh, who am I? Well, my name is John. I'm the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. I'm a Nazarite, not a Nazarene, a Nazarite, who doesn't cut his hair, doesn't touch dead bodies, doesn't consume anything with grapes. My address is 777 Straight Pathway, Wilderness Region. I'm 30 years old, and I adhere to an all-natural, locally-sourced diet of whole foods. <laughs> Remember what he ate? Locusts and raw honey. Yeah. He didn't identify himself in any, in any normal human fashion. He proclaimed his identity in what God had called him to do, and in whom he believed was the one sent from God. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now, some of you are familiar with that majestic, uh, what do they call that? Well, it's a big piece of music. My wife will know the name of it. Oratorio, that's the word I was looking for. It's called the Messiah. The most famous piece in it is the Hallelujah Chorus. But there's another part, and it's all scripture. It's all taken right from the Bible. Handel wrote it that way. And he wrote one of those passages that says, Everybody shall be exalted. Right? Exalted. That's, that's how the guy has to sing it. It's hard. And that is directly from Isaiah, as John said, quoting the prophet Isaiah, I am the voice of one calling. Here's what it actually says in Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. That doesn't mean that we'll worship and praise mountains. It doesn't mean, oh, that mountain is so exalted. No, it means that valley. Every valley will be exalted. That means instead of it being a valley, it will be raised to level. That valley will be raised. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. So the valleys come up, the mountains come down. It's all plain. It's all level. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places will be made smooth. Just like 2nd Avenue in the last year. Right? The rough places were made smooth. Finally. But that's what happens when the Messiah comes. That's why the voice is crying in the wilderness. That's what Isaiah said centuries before John shows up. And they ask him, who are you? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You better get ready. The Messiah's coming. Wow. He knew who he was. He knew what his purpose was. He knew what he was called to do. He knew his identity. You might say, well, why is that such a big deal, Pastor Mike? Well, to me it's a big deal because 45 years ago, a college professor looked at us ministerial students and took us through this passage, and then he said to every one of us, who are you? I wish I had the privilege of looking each of you in the eye and saying, who are you? Don't tell me your name, your address, your phone number, who you're married to, your job, what car you drive. I don't want to know that. I want to know, who are you? Why are you here? What has God called you to do? What is your identity in Christ? Who are you? And so I had to come up with an answer because our professor made us write it out. It wasn't quite a term paper, it was an essay. 
But here's my answer 45 years ago, and it's still my answer today. I am one called to share the good news and the joy of Jesus with those around me. Oh, I, I could say I'm Mike Hancock, 1119 Union Road, Xenia, Ohio, married to Becky Beam, father of three, grandfather of five, associate pastor at Xenia. No, who are you? I am one called to share the good news and the joy of Jesus with those around me. So I ask, who are you? Your answer is not going to be the same as mine because your identity is not the same as mine. But when you find your identity in Christ, he'll show you who you are and what you're called to do. And you can answer that question for yourself. Who are you? Let's look at Jesus and the confidence he had in his identity. We go back to John baptizing people. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Now, I personally believe that everybody saw that. That's just my opinion because the Bible says, and he saw the Spirit of God descending. I think John saw it. I think the people standing on the shore saw it. I think this was a supernatural, miraculous moment. And, and God was commissioning his son in that moment. And the next verse says, and a voice. So they saw the dove that represented the Holy Spirit. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And that ends chapter 3. Now, when uh, Matthew wrote it, he didn't know that that would be the end of chapter th 3, did he? He just wrote the biography of Jesus, the history. And someone else later, some scholars, divided it into verses and chapters for us. But I think when they got to this part, they said, Oh, that's a good place for a commercial. Let's leave them hanging, right? Because this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Good place for a break. And look how chapter 4 starts. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do any of you understand the term mountaintop experience? That's an old, an old cliche we use in the church. A mountaintop experience. It might be a revival service. It might be a special prayer time. It might be an experience at the altar where you're praying. It might be a worship service when the Spirit of God moved in a, a, an unmistakable way. It might be a camp meeting service or a, a youth camp that you were a part of. When you had a mountaintop experience in your spiritual life. It's like, whoa, man, can it get any better than this? I think we call it that because the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and he saw Elijah and Moses, I think it was, and Peter says, wow, something is important here. We need to build some tabernacles or booths. We need to, we need to make some monuments here because this is a mountaintop experience. I hope that you've had a mountaintop experience in your spiritual life. But the truth is, we don't live on the mountaintop. We live down here. Sometimes we live down here, right? Jesus had a mountain. He wasn't on the mountain in this case. He was in the river, right? But he had a mountaintop experience. He heard the verbal voice of God say, this is my son that I love. I am pleased with him. Wow, what an affirmation. Talk about finding your identity in God. 
God the Father is saying to His Son, I'm pleased with you. I love you. You're my son. That's his identity. But then what happens? From the mountaintop experience to the wilderness experience. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And after that, everybody say those three words. He was hungry. Duh. I tried to fast for seven days one time and I made it. It was a challenge, but I got to have broth and fruit juices. I just didn't have any solid food for, for seven days. And that was very, very difficult. Jesus did it for 40 days and 40 nights. And I know some Bible students say, well, that's just a, 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 a phrase that describes a long period of time. We don't know it was exactly 40 days and 40 nights. I'm thinking, then why was Matthew so specific? Why did he put 40 days and 40 nights? Why didn't he just say Jesus fasted for a long time? I mean, do we believe or not? And so Jesus, fully God, but fully human, is hungry. He's exhausted. He's probably dehydrated. He's had intense time with God. And some Bible commentators believe that he was tempted the entire 40 days and 40 nights, not just at the end. Think about that. 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness... Satan comes to him, at least, if he didn't do it the whole 40 days and 40 nights, he does at the end of it. And look, the first, get this now, the first words that Jesus hears in 40 days, he hasn't heard any other verbal voices for 40 days. What were the last words he heard? My son, I love you, I'm pleased with you. Now, 40 days later, the first verbal words he hears, if you are the son. Isn't that just like Satan? Isn't that just like the tempter? To use God's words and twist them around and get us to doubt and cause us to be confused. Jesus has the mountaintop experience. I'm God's son. I'm loved by him. I'm approved by him. He's proud of me. And now the tempter comes and says, if you are the son of God, why don't you take matters into your own hands and turn these stones into bread? After all, you're hungry, aren't you? There aren't any grocery stores out here. Nothing grows in the wilderness. You can't satisfy your hunger any other way. You just need to turn these rocks. And maybe after 40 days, he was hallucinating to the point that the rocks looked like loaves of bread. Especially the kind my little sister used to make. We could use it for doorstops, right? And so, take matters into your own hand. Make some bread for yourself. But listen, the Word of God answers with the Word of God. Jesus, the Word. Remember, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And He created all things. By Him, all things were made. The Word of God answers with the Word of God. And three times Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Jesus says, it is written. The word says man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Satan goes, <coughs> I didn't know he was going to use the Bible on me. What a concept. 
to use the Word of God to fight temptation. Wow, why didn't we think of that? Well, we can think of it because our example showed us how. So then Satan, after he tries this physical temptation, we're, we're tempted physically. There are all kinds of physical needs and physical urges that we have, and Satan exploits those. Satan uses those to tempt us physically. You can, you can fill in the blanks there. Jesus was tempted physically. In his case, it was hunger. In our case, it may be some other kind of physical need or urge. But Satan was tempting Jesus to take matters into his own hands instead of trusting his heavenly Father to provide. Do we do the same? Yeah. Oh, I can handle that. God's given me a certain amount of brains and a certain amount of strength and a certain amount of money that I can, I can take care of these needs. I don't have to bother God. And then when things really get rough, we say, where were you all that time, God? Why haven't you showed up? Because we haven't depended on Him. We've been too self-sufficient. We haven't needed Him. Jesus needed the Lord, and He told Satan, that's not how I'm going to satisfy this physical need. I'm going to trust God, my Heavenly Father, to provide for me. And he was able to overcome that temptation. So Satan tries, not a physical temptation, but next a social or emotional temptation. Look at this. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, I don't know if that was physical or figurative. But if it was physical, if Jesus was actually on top of the pinnacle of the temple, that means that it was busy down below. But probably no one saw him. You ever been in a situation like that where you're just taking care of business, you never look up? And then one person goes, look, and everybody stops, and the whole crowd looks up. But Satan took Jesus to this high place, and, and here's the temptation. Throw yourself down, because God will send his angels to pick you up and carry you so that you'll land safely. And look how you impress the crowds. Look at the hit you'll make with them. You'll be a hero. Everybody will say, wow, he must be the Messiah because he was on his way down and the angels came and scooped him up and he landed safely. You'll be the hero of the day, Jesus. Jesus, once again, the word of God answers with the word of God and simply says from Deuteronomy, do not tempt the Lord your God. Don't put God to that kind of test not right. And Jesus is able to overcome the temptation by quoting the Word of God. And that was, that was because Jesus wasn't playing to the crowd. Jesus wasn't trying to impress the throngs. Jesus was playing to an audience of one, His Heavenly Father. And He knew His identity was in Him. Then we hear the third temptation. This one is a spiritual temptation. First was physical, then social or emotional, now spiritual. And Satan takes him to that high place, back one slide. The devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And all this I will give you, Satan said, if you will bow down and worship me. <clears throat> Interesting. That Satan offered something he didn't even have, isn't it? All this I will give you. <clears throat> this spiritual test 
Satan tried to convince Jesus that he could offer him everything the world contained. Of course, Jesus knew the splendor of heaven. He knew the throne room of God. Jesus knew that he himself had created the world. And Jesus knew that Satan had nothing to give because Satan owned nothing. Knowing who he was, Jesus confronted Satan with the truth that God and God alone is to be worshipped and served. Once again from Deuteronomy, worship God and serve him only. Again, the word of God answers the temptation with the word of God. Jesus knew who he was. Now, you're going to be tempted physically. You're going to be tempted socially and emotionally. You're going to be tempted spiritually. Are you ready with your ammunition? Do you know the word of God so you can, you can answer the enemy based on the foundation of God and his word? Do you know who you are in Christ enough to say, no, I don't need that. I won't do that. I won't listen to you, Satan. In fact, someone said, if Satan comes knocking at your door, don't answer it. Say, Jesus, will you get that? Let Jesus answer the door when Satan shows up. He fights him a whole lot better than we do. Jesus knew who he was, and he knows that we'll face temptation, and he wants to energize us and fill us with his spirit so we can face temptation with his strength and victory. Later in Jesus' ministry, Jesus asked his disciples who people said he was. Let's look at that. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and still others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Thank you so much. And um, the same way that Jesus' ministry started, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, he's being reaffirmed. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter blurted it out. You're the Messiah, the sent one, the Christ, the hope, the son of the living God. And Jesus commended Peter for that answer because Jesus knew who he was and was comfortable in his own identity. And then on the last night of Jesus' life on this earth, the night before he was crucified, he answered again the question of who he was. What was his identity? When he took the towel and basin, when he knelt in front of each disciple and washed their feet. Let's look at this one. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already tempted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Does that sound like Jesus knew his identity? I think so. He knew that he had come from God, was returning to God. All things are under his power. So he got up from that meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Knowing who he was, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. 
Wow, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who had left all the splendor and glory of heaven, the throne room of God. He had left all of that, condescended to our level to be one of us. But knowing who he was, he washed his disciples' feet. So the question comes through loud and clear again. Who are you? Who are you? Do you have an answer? Are you ready to give an answer? Not just the facts, but who you are in Christ. If you've committed your life to Jesus, your identity is found in Him. Yes. Not in status, not in stuff, not in relationships, education, career, money, achievements. All of that doesn't matter. Oh, yeah, it helps our lives to, to be good at that stuff, but that's not who we are. Jesus is our foundation. He is our constant. He is our rock with a capital R. He is our affirmation, our mentor. He is our true identity giver. He can give you victory in every situation, help in every circumstance, and guidance in every decision. The question is, are you willing to go all in with Him and identify with Him as His faithful and devoted follower? Who are you? In Christ, you'll know who you are, and His Spirit will help you, refine you, grow you, conform you to the image of Christ, and His power will be there to help you in every situation when those temptations come. Our servers are coming to the table. We're going to talk to the Lord in prayer by either coming to the altar for our prayer time or receiving the Lord's Supper, this means of grace through which we can communicate with Him. You may just wish to remain in your seat and meditate and pray. But in these moments, these quiet moments, I encourage you to think about who you are in Christ. What is your identity in Him? Have you settled that question? Are you all in with Him? The Lord Himself ordained this holy sacrament of communion. He commanded His disciples to partake of the bread and the unfermented wine, emblems of His broken body and shed blood. This is His table. This feast is for His disciples, that all those who have with true repentance forsaken their sins and have believed in Christ unto salvation draw near and take these emblems and by faith partake of the life of Jesus Christ to your soul's comfort and joy. Let us remember that this is the memorial of the death and passion of our Lord. It is also a token of His coming again. Let us not forget that we are one at one table with the Lord. In the Church of the Nazarene, we practice open communion. You don't have to be a member of our church or a member of any church for that matter. If you're seeking after Christ, if your heart is set on Him, we invite you to come and experience this special moment with Him. Heavenly Father, bless those who serve these gifts of communion. Bless those who receive. Thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ that we're a part of. And thank you for this bread, which represents your broken body, and this unfermented wine, which represents your blood poured out for our salvation. We offer up these gifts of communion to you and ask that you bless them and sanctify them for the purpose of ministering to our souls. 
Help us, Lord, to be your people and help us to answer the question, who are you, by knowing that our identity is truly in Christ. Thank you for your word today, for teaching us your truth. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.